Welcome back to Pro Football Network's premier fantasy football podcast. I'm your host, BJ Rudell, PFN's fantasy football director with me. As always, is PFN fantasy analyst Jason Katz, better known as Katz. And as always, you can find us at profootballnetwork.com at the uh, fantasy tab or any other tab that suits your NFL interests. Uh, we're still getting prepared for the 2022 season, as we will be for months. Uh, Katz and I and Tommy Garrett on the fantasy team here at PFN are working every day to try to get everything prepared so that we have as many answers as possible as we get into the crucial months of July and August and get ready for people's drafts. And even before then, if you're drafting in May and June, keep in touch with us. In the meantime, we're going through underperformers. Last week, we did quarterbacks and running backs. This week, we're going to be focusing on wideouts and tight ends, some surprising big underperformers this past season. And most importantly, instead of just talking about them, what were the warning signs? Could these underperformances have been predicted? If so, how? If not, what do we learn? Or even if so, how do what do we learn heading into 2022? How do we get smarter at fantasy football knowing what we now know? So I'm going to throw it to you, Katz. Who's one of your biggest wideout underperformers for 2021? I'm going to start with DeAndre Hopkins. Yes, and number one on my list, by the way. So yes, go ahead. Perfect. This has not much to do with the fact that he only played in 10 games because even before his injury, he was a screaming sell, and the warning signs were there. He averaged 14.7 fantasy points per game in PPR leagues. But the key here is 32.5% of his fantasy points came from touchdowns. He was scoring a touchdown on 19% of his receptions. By way of comparison, the best wide receiver in football, Cooper Cup, who led all wide receivers in touchdowns with 16, scored one on 11% of his receptions. Even Jamar Chase, who was ridiculously efficient as a rookie, 13 touchdowns on just 81 receptions, that was only a 16% rate. So it really speaks to how reliant DeAndre Hopkins was on touchdowns. And the touchdowns just didn't comport with the usage and the targeting and the yardage because he averaged just 57.2 receiving yards per game, which is his lowest number since his rookie season. In fact, since 2014, he never averaged fewer than 75.6 yards per game. So Hopkins was not being used as much, yet the touchdowns were there, propping up his fantasy value. And if you noticed that early in the season, you could have sold him for way more than he was actually worth. And this is a guy who's going to be 30 this summer. Um, and uh, and the question becomes, how many more great years can we get out of DeAndre Hopkins? And by great, are we now saying, is he still top 10? Or uh, is he really more of a, a of a you know mid range WR two? What do you think going into twenty twenty two? Is this like the beginning of of the fall that happens when receivers get somewhere into their thirties? I always want to be out on a receiver too early rather than hang around too long. I'm not saying I'm out on DeAndre Hopkins. It really depends on what he costs this year. I certainly will not value him as the same top six, top eight guy that he has been for the last half decade. Uh, if he falls uh, later into drafts, I might be interested in drafting him. But the thing is, what we saw from him last year, mainly from the injury front, was a lingering hamstring issue. And mm -hmm. if you can recall, Julio Jones dealt with nagging soft tissue injuries for the majority of his career. As a guy in his 20s, he played through them, and he rarely missed a game. 
he turned 31, 32, all of a sudden he couldn't stay on the field. Hopkins, like you said, turning 30, I'm worried the same thing might happen to him. Whereas where a guy who just never missed games, all of a sudden his body can't hold up to the rigors of a full length NFL season now with an extra game. And perhaps he starts missing more games. Maybe they reduce his usage to keep him fresh. And he's not the same fantasy asset we're accustomed to getting. I can see that. I'll say one more word, uh, and I'm not sure if it's going to be a good word, but I'm fascinated by uh, who will be the back in the backfield of this team uh, next season. The fact that James Conner, and we talked about him last week a little bit, just you know, so many touchdowns. He had you know what 17, 18 touchdowns last year, uh, and Chase Edmonds obviously had a couple. But the big thing was James Conner. And you think about all those close-range touchdowns that were scored. And despite Hopkins' high percentage touchdown rate, which you which you adequately highlight, I mean, that's a really good thing to point out. I do want to believe if the Cardinals' running game is not that efficient from near the goal line, what might that mean to basically the the other top weapon on the team? which is at this point still clearly DeAndre Hopkins uh, separated himself from every other receiver. Even if Christian Kirk has closed the gap a little bit, there's still this sense that maybe Hopkins left some touchdowns on the table, given how efficient Connor was. Is there any validity to that from your end? Or do you think that I'm just trying to create a, a devil's advocate position on DeAndre Hopkins? Well, I don't think there's any way he can maintain this touchdown scoring pace what we can hope for is a bit of a rebound in 2022 where the overall volume goes up and he can maintain his total number of touchdowns despite a drop in the rate in which he scores them. Now, when it comes to the Cardinals as a whole, there are a lot of moving parts right now. Both James Conner and Chase Edmonds are free agents, and so is Christian Kirk. So we don't know what a lot of this offense is going to look like as of right now. We'll have much more information in a couple of weeks when, once free agency hits. And then, of course, we have the NFL draft in late April. And, and that, at that point, we'll have a we'll have more clarity on the offensive weapons we're interested in in the Cardinals. Uh, but right now, uh, it's kind of a wait-and-see approach. Yeah, good. Well, who else do you have on your list of, of uh, uh, surprising underperformers, big-time underperformers, and what we can learn from them? Um, this is an interesting one because it's – it was overperformance, then it became underperformance, and that's Hollywood Brown. He yeah. was another just massive, massive sell candidate over the first half of the season. And as somebody who rostered him in a league, I made the mistake of not selling him because I was just so enamored with the production. But the reality is I should have known it was unsustainable. We all know the pros. He's really fast, drafted in the first round. He was the team's wide receiver one, at least entering the season. But the reality is Hollywood Brown has always been miscast as a wide receiver one. He's a, he's a, he's a fake wide receiver one in real life, and he's a fake wide receiver one in fantasy. He scored five touchdowns over his first seven games. After that, zero. Not a single touchdown the rest of the season. In fact, after week eight, you never should have started him because his highest single-game receiving yardage total was 55, and he didn't score a touchdown. And then when you add to that his low, I mean, he has a, a career low, roughly 61% catch rate. Um, this is not a, a, he's never really been, this is the highest volume. Clearly he's been in three seasons. He had almost a 
150 targets. Um, but he converted that, you know, almost 150 targets into a thousand yards and six touchdowns. This is not a um, an efficiency enhancing uh, offensive weapon. Uh, he is a, uh, a a catalyst, uh, but he's not the guy. And I think we learned that in watching Rashad uh, Bateman uh, uh, ascend. We definitely saw that with Mark Andrews uh, take that leap into the rarefied air of elite tight end status uh, and become uh, particularly a, a dominant force near uh, the red zone. We might imagine a more efficient running game next season led by J.K. Dobbins, maybe, uh, becomes takes some pressure off the passing game. Um, I mean, the fact is uh, Devontae Freeman was acceptable, uh, but he wasn't game changer uh, acceptable. He wasn't at that level where, you know, the Raiders, uh, the Ravens still, I mean, their defense was so, so bad. They needed to pass deep into games. And so it seemed like there were a lot of factors contributing to Marquise Brown getting almost 150 targets. But the fact that he didn't do much with them should be a warning sign heading into 22 and 2 that as those targets presumably will drop, um, his production probably will drop with it. This is not a guy who's going to suddenly get more efficient uh, year after year after year. Yeah, he's entering his fourth season, and, and I'm very concerned with the efficiency because he saw a drop in his yards per reception down to 11.1, a career low for him. And you would think that with the volume, it would be able to make up for that, but it, it, that, that wasn't the case. And if he's not burning guys deep and scoring those touchdowns, he's not going to produce in fantasy. And like you, you brought up a really good point about the Ravens defense being just horrifically bad, which was mainly due to injury. Injuries tend to even out over years. Their defense is going to be better next year, probably by a significant margin. And they do not want to attempt 611 passes again. It's right. just not going to happen. Yeah. If they go back down to that 500-ish number, all of a sudden um, Hollywood Brown's volume goes down. Does the efficiency go up as a result? Maybe. But if he couldn't produce with the volume, I'm worried about what he'll look like without it. Yeah. he. I just looked last year. Uh, he had 39 targets uh, in the second half. Um, and uh, and I will look up uh, momentarily because I don't have, you know, believe it or not, folks listening, we don't have all the stats in our brains uh, as much as uh, we wish we did. This year in the uh, second half, he had 67. Uh, targets so he he upped his targets by about 40 percent in the second half by necessity because they were playing from behind so much uh but not but he didn't produce uh, uh in a way that would make us feel confident that any reduction in that volume in 2022 is going to make him a surefire weekly starter the fact is he probably won't be rashad bateman could nestle into that number one role andrews is here to stay a better running game, and like you're saying, a healthier, slightly better at the very least, maybe significantly better defense, uh, will in some ways make Marquise Brown a third or fourth option on offense most weeks, and that's scary for someone who's drafting Brown, let's say, in the fifth, sixth round, which is probably where he'll be worth, unfortunately, going into next season. Uh, who else do you have, Cats? All right, the, the, the last guy I've got on my list here is – probably everyone's favorite uh, to rag on from 2021. And that's Allen Robinson, who I love, but I drafted him. 
Yeah. Or it was a rough 2021 for Allen Robinson. We, we knew heading into the season. I, I remember uh, there was a study done on rookie, rookie quarterbacks and their ability to support fantasy-relevant wide receivers. And the reality is um, no rookie quarterback ever, at least at least in the last like 20 years or so, has supported two top 40 wide receivers. So naturally, of course, well, Allen Robinson for sure will be that guy. So it couldn't be Darnell Mooney, right? Turns out the one guy that Justin Fields supported was, in fact, Darnell Mooney as Allen Robinson finished outside the top 80. I mean, if, when, when, before the season, when we talk about range of outcomes, if you ask me to give you a range of outcomes for Allen Robinson, I would say his ceiling is like wide receiver 10 and his floor is like wide receiver 20. Right. And under no circumstances would I have been able to predict a wide receiver 80, a guy that should have been dropped in week five, but we just couldn't because we refused to believe he was actually this bad. Career lows in yards per reception to 10.8. He averaged 34.2 receiving yards per game. His career low before that was 54.8 in his rookie year. I and mean, that's how down of a year it was for Robinson. So the question I'm going to ask you is, what do we attribute this to? He was 28 years old. He'll be 29 <laughs> years old this season. Is he done or can he go bounce back somewhere else? Uh, you, you, you could chalk it up to a chemistry issue. Uh, you know, it's... Uh... Um, you know, people knock Mitch Trubisky. Um, he, he certainly had a, a few years of rapport, uh, with Robinson. Um, and it was good enough, obviously to elevate Robinson, uh, into that, you know, top 10, top 12 range, top 14 range consistently. And then you bring in Andy Dalton, uh, who is a, a fading talent, uh, and Justin Fields, who really, uh, did not have the full luxury of being given the starting job. So he was uh, probably in that very tough position of trying to prove to an eventually outgoing head coach uh, that he belonged to top the depth chart um, and uh, really wasn't ready uh, at that point. I mean, the, the, he's not a pocket passer. He's, he's, he's uh, you know, he is designed differently. And so you, you put the combination of that into the hands of throwing to Allen Robinson, Marquise Goodwin, and uh and darnell mooney and cole kmet and jimmy graham and it's just it, it becomes a mess if defenses can lock down uh on alan robinson and you're forcing darnell mooney to beat you uh those are pretty good odds and darnell mooney by the way i mean his catch rate was worse than marquise brown's who it, it was uh it was like 58 percent um you know this was not an efficient offense by any stretch and so all i can say is i didn't see it coming but in hindsight uh, with the quarterback situation pretty much a mess and 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 receivers not knowing from week to week who is going to be throwing to them. I think that does have an impact. And especially, and I hate to, uh, to think about what Robinson's thinking about because who knows what he's thinking about. But even before the season, there was an expectation that Robinson would be on his way out. And this is a frustrating situation for a guy who's playing for a big long-term contract in the prime of his career to have Andy Dalton and a rookie throwing to him and in any given week, you don't know who the who the quarterback's going to be till the middle of the week or later in the week. That's tough, and, and, and your team is not a playoff team. Um, so you know, I think Robinson is a great bounce back candidate. The talent has always been there. Is he going to be top ten, top twelve, top fourteen? Probably not. Um, he's probably not going to be the guy on a on a team that he goes to. But is he going to be a nine hundred yard, seven touchdown, you know, kind of guy? Absolutely, he can be that guy. And so I actually like Robinson as a buy low, depending on where he is. He's probably going to be in like, you know, 35 ADP, 30 ADP, somewhere in there. Uh, and he's probably a good get at that point. 
but I, I'm with you. I mean, I drafted him in the third round of my 14-team league, uh, late third round, and uh, had no idea. I, I bailed on him as fast as I possibly could uh, by around week four, week three, when I realized this was not changing. Yeah. That's my, I, that's my I, long answer. I tend to agree with you there. Uh, I, I, I suspect we'll be talking about him again in a couple of weeks when we cover the big free agent signings because yes. uh, he will not be in Chicago this year. I, I, he played 2021 on the franchise tag. He didn't want to, but he didn't hold out. Uh, he played out his, his, his season, and now uh, now he's going elsewhere. So I, I look forward to seeing where he ends up. Well, I and, and I've got two for you. Uh, uh, Hopkins and Robinson were on my list, and I'll throw out two to you. One of them, and to all of you listening, obviously, and as some of these might not be surprising, but they're important to talk about. One of them I completely whiffed on. Uh, and the other one, uh, I, I saw the writing on the wall around week five, week six, when I first joined Pro Football Network, and I wrote about him pretty extensively in our newsletter and uh, and on the website and elsewhere saying the ingredients are not there for a successful season. He is a sell immediately candidate. And I even talked about it on our uh, podcast with, uh, with you cats and with Tommy uh, back in the fall. So the first guy, Kenny Galladay, I whiffed on him. I traded for him uh, around week five, thinking he was a bounce back candidate. I didn't understand how a team could invest 70 some odd million dollars in a proven talented i mean he is he's a better version in my opinion of alan robinson i think kenny galladay has the ability to be elite in the right system and he comes into i mean, I mean he what he did with the lions was was incredible uh, and even with backup quarterbacks when stafford was hurt what he did was incredible he comes to the giants and it by the second half of the season he's getting two targets a game when he's healthy i mean it, it was inexplicable to me it's almost my perception of it would be that the team just quit. But of course they didn't quit. These are all professionals. But how do you explain a guy of that talent with that much money riding on it and the team doesn't know how to get him the ball? I mean, you could blame it on Daniel Jones. You could blame it on the coaching staff. You could blame it on anybody. But I think Kenny Galladay is one of those intriguing guys where he did not see that coming. Definitely saw some regression from being the guy to being in a little bit of a crowded uh, receiving core where he would presumably be the leader, but he has nowhere to go but up. And it would be shocking to me if the Giants waste another season of Kenny Galladay. It would be almost criminally negligent for them to waste that much money on someone that talented in his pre-prime years uh, without at least giving the Giants fans something to root for. I... I was not in on Kenny Galladay. I had been in the past. And I think that the issue with Kenny Galladay, and it's unfortunate and difficult to admit, uh, he was never as good as we thought he was. And oh. that's, that's the conclusion that I've drawn. Uh, I mean, he was a 24-year-old rookie, and those, those players typically just don't necessarily pan out. But Galladay, really big, very athletic, was dominant in college, and he had that really, really strong uh 25 age, age 25 season he kind of broke out with the 70 catches 1063 yards five touchdowns then 2019 he played a full season led the league in touchdowns with 11 but the reality is 65 for 1190 that's a great season i'm not i'm not trying to dismiss that at all that's his only great season age 26 he's now 29 years old he has had multiple seasons derailed by injury and he has had one season where he has been this top dominant receiver uh, at age 29, is he suddenly going to become uh, this dominant receiver we saw once? Or was that year just an anomaly? I tend to lean toward an anomaly. I think Galladay is uh, he's not bad. I think he's good. 
but I don't think that he is the elite player that I once thought he was. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that is uh, a great assessment. Uh, we'll agree to disagree, but uh, we can both agree that this year will be fascinating. If Galladay is getting, you know, 600 yards and five touchdowns, if he's a glorified tight end in terms of his usage, um, th- this could, this could be really troubling. This could be, you know, Odell Beckham Jr., but with no escape, um, uh, you know, from the Browns. I mean, this is, uh, to me, this is a wasted talent uh, and a team that needs to figure out how to uh, cut bait with some of their excess receivers who are not producing at a high level and try to uh, uh, create, maybe fix their backfield if Saquon Barkley is not the answer. Uh, surely they need another quarterback and another quarterback could actually take Galladay on another level. But for fantasy purposes, it is hard to invest in a guy like Galladay when you've got Sterling Shepard and Kadarius Toney and even Evan Ingram all crowding the receiving core and all getting attention and even Darius Slayton on occasion. Um, the, the goal, the hope is that things start to thin out a little bit. And if you're in dynasty that you can look ahead to a Galladay in let's say 2024, who's back to being the true number one, because that's obviously what you want in fantasy purposes. And this is a fantasy podcast. We have to hope there's clarity or else. Yeah. Galladay is more of a streaming guy. I think going into 2023, I do believe 2022, he will bounce back, but obviously we want more out of him, especially if you invested in him last year when his value was sky high. Last guy. Oh, go ahead. I I will say his 48%. 48.7% catch rate. I will blame that more on the just poor quarterback play he had yes, to deal yes. with yeah. and his career low yards per reception, 14.1. And the fact that he only had 5.4 targets per game is unacceptable. I know that I, that I spent time kind of just push, putting him down a little bit, but the reality is Kenny Galladay is still a starting wide receiver talent in the NFL. And he was still clearly the most talented wide receiver on the Giants. And for some reason, they just couldn't get him the ball. He didn't score a touchdown. He played 14 games. How is that possible? I mean, yeah. I understand that Gaudi is partially to blame for that, but the reality is his team needed to get him more red zone targets. And he had nine all season, nine. This guy is 6'4", 218, and he had nine red zone targets right. on the season. Right. I realized the Giants weren't there that often, but man, you got you got to do better than that with this number one receiver. So I so I know I'm kind of trying to kind of playing both sides of the fence here, where I'm saying I don't think he's as good as we thought he was, but he certainly is better than we saw in 2021. That's true. And one of the warning signs, and this is something for all of you listening, and I'm going to sock this away in the future. Galladay made a comment in August, I think it was late August, because there were a lot of injuries to a lot of Giants players uh, over the offseason. And he said to the media, uh, we haven't all really been practicing together. You know, basically, we, we still need to gel as a team. That was his way of signaling we our, our timing isn't down yet. So, you know, you're looking at a guy, a, a, you know, a third-year quarterback who's probably not a franchise quarterback last offseason. This offseason, we can tell Daniel Jones really isn't the answer by all accounts. Maybe at his best, he's a good quarterback, but we don't usually see him at his best. And we see a guy in Galladay who comes in along with a rookie, Kadarius Tony and Saquon Barkley's unpredictability, and you get this hodgepodge of an offense, Sterling Shepard going in and out of injury, uh, Kadarius Tony getting hurt after that, his huge game, there really wasn't an opportunity for this team to work together. And in hindsight, looking back on that statement that Galladay made, it was clear that this was a team that needed a ramp up to gel. 
and they never got the ramp up because they weren't all healthy at the same time long enough to ramp up together. So something to think about. Um, uh, Terry McLaurin, cats. Uh, I, I was really upfront about this. Once Ryan Fitzpatrick went down, I didn't like what I was saw, seeing out of Taylor Heineke. Uh, I made the call that, that McLaurin was a huge uh, sell high guy. Um, I didn't see, I, I saw what was happening to other number one receivers with weaker quarterbacks. And I started to get nervous that the same thing was going to happen to McLaurin, that this was a guy who, you know, Diami Brown and Curtis Samuel went healthy and anybody else, Adam Humphreys, none of them could hold a candle to what McLaurin could bring. And Washington was, was unfortunately in a position where they weren't peppering McLaurin with 12 targets a game. So he was at a disadvantageous position as a number one receiver with a poor quarterback facing a lot of tough defenses. And oh, by the way, not getting the targets that he would normally need to be a regular starter. Um, so he, he is concerning to me. And, uh, and until the Washington's uh, quarterback situation gets fixed, uh, he will continue to be concerning to me. What are your thoughts, Katz? I, I agree. Um, I love Terry McLaurin as a talent. He played every game last season and he managed to have 10 fewer receptions and about 65 fewer receiving yards than he did in his, in his uh, 2020 season, despite playing in two more games, which is right. not what you want. He averaged 15.1 PPR points per game in 2020. And that number dropped all the way down to 12.6 in 2021. That's 2.5 points. So it's a pretty significant drop off. And people were drafting him in that uh, early third round with the assumption he would take another step forward. So you were paying a bit up for an expected breakout. And instead, you got some regression, which is really not what you want there. Not what you want in the third round or in any round for that matter. Uh, hoping that he can turn things around this year. But we still have no idea what the commander's quarterback situation looks like. So it's kind of a, that's another another guy who's wait and see approach. See what they do at quarterback in free agency in the draft, and if they're going to roll with Taylor Heineke, and if they are, perhaps we need to downgrade McLaurin a little bit, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's um, uh, his his uh, his catch rate below sixty percent. Um, you know, we talked about catch rate a bunch on this podcast. It does matter sometimes. It's quarterback play. McLaurin's catch rate has never been superb, but you know, Mike Evans' catch rate has never been superb. I mean, the fact is, you can still be. Uh, an elite or near elite receiver and not have a great catch rate. But if your catch rate is, is low and some of it is due to quarterback play and the quarterback play is not improving uh, and your targets are pretty much capped. I'd never, I don't see McLaurin hitting that 150, 160 target. He's not going to be a DeAndre Hopkins in his heyday kind of receiver. This is a guy who's going to be, uh, it seems to be kind of this thousand yard, five touchdown guy. Like that's, that's probably what he is. But I think people were expecting him to keep elevating his game, that he's young, he's pre-prime. We haven't seen the best of him. And the question with McLaurin is, if we don't see an improvement at quarterback, and assuming Washington beefs up its receiving core, I mean, Logan Thomas was injured pretty much the whole year. Uh, Diami Brown was out a bunch. Curtis Samuel was out a bunch. Um, if, this, if this Washington offense actually gets healthy receiver-wise, but the quarterback doesn't improve, I think that's a recipe for potential regression uh, instead of improvement. The quarterback elevates the upside of the entire passing attack. And without that elevation of upside, 
more is less when it comes to more health from other receivers means concernedly uh, potentially less opportunity for McLaurin to really stand out as a number one. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that. Well, that's uh, that's a great way to end it, Katz. That's my favorite way to end it. Um, and uh, in fairness, if you had said, I, I disagree with you entirely, I would have not edited that out at the end. I would have kept that in <laughs> um, and we would have gone forward. Uh, I, I, again, a big thank you uh, to my partner in crime, uh, Jason Katz, better known as Katz, uh, BJ Rudell. We are Pro Football Network. Uh, catch this podcast, the Premier Fantasy Football Podcast, uh, anywhere where you get your podcasts, including where you got this one. Because if you got this one somewhere, the next one will be on the same place, rest assured. Uh, we will see you later this week, talk about tight ends. And then the following week, we're going to be getting into uh, potential free agent signings. We're going to be getting into combine information, any fantasy implication of uh, dynasty and even redraft. Uh, we're going to be talking about so that you can gradually prepare. We don't want you to crash in August with, I need 20 hours of research to figure out who I'm drafting. We're giving you a little bit of a at a time so you can be ready to go when it's time for you to draft. We'll see you next time.